I hope that you are doing well. College football is officially back. So some of you feel alive again, right? I can tell. I can tell by the looks on your face today. Uh, Mr. Mahomes looks great. So I'm trusting that many of you have already begun the spiritual warfare of praying for a hedge of protection around Mr. Mahomes for an entire NFL season, right? It's fun. This is a fun season for me. Um, not just because of football, but that doesn't hurt. But for our family, the last about 10 days, uh, we have a reason to celebrate about every other day. Uh, for example, my wife and I just celebrated 31 years of being married. Yep. She, she deserves that and more. Um, we just celebrated my youngest daughter's 22nd birthday. Yeah, you should clap for her or, yeah. If you didn't clap for her, she wouldn't think you loved her, right? And we, today marks the ninth anniversary of our son becoming a part of our family. Today is gotcha day for him. And just a few days ago marks the third anniversary of him actually becoming a part of God's family, because three years ago he put his trust in Jesus and follows him. So you believe me now, it's like we got a party going on every other day. Now I recognize some seasons are not celebrations. Some seasons are lost. So you got to enjoy those seasons when they come along, and I'm just declaring today that I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. And I want to welcome our Adrian campus who joins us by video. We are really grateful for the chance to be able to, to do this together. After today's talk, we have just one more week of our study called Blueprint. Um, Blueprint is a, a study of First Timothy, and we have almost made it all the way through. Okay, Jeff, what are we going to do next? Well, I promise you there is more, all right? And next week, I'll tell you more about what that's going to be, all right? Today, I admit to you that I normally don't put much time if any time, into titles of specific talks. We do series like Blueprint, but I, I really don't put a lot of time into coming up like with a message title for each week because honestly, most of the time it's just not worth the effort. But if I had to have a title for today, I got it. It would be this, wages, warnings, and a little wine. Does that work? Somebody should write a country song or something out of that. I'm thinking wages, warnings, and a little wine. Now you hear that and you say, well that sounds like things, three things that would really be totally disconnected. Jeff, what in the world does that have to do with the blueprint of a healthy church? And really, what would that have to do with my life? Well, I believe there's actually a common thread. 
And although this common thread is for our good, it is a common thread that we often miss and we often resist. Because the common thread is knowing your limits. Knowing your limits. That's what we're going to talk about. In a book called None Like Him, it expounds on ten ways that God is different from us and why that's a good thing. Jen Wilkins begins chapter one with this quote. She says, on the day I was born, the doctor who delivered me inscribed my birth records with a firm hand, seven pounds, 11 ounces, 21 inches. It was the first legally attested evidence that I was not God. I was measurable. I like that. The fact that there is a dash between the first breath we take and the last breath that we take, it, it testifies to the fact that we are measurable. We have limits. Now God does not. Let's make sure we understand that. Our God is infinite. He was before time began. He always will be. He is limitless. But we, by our very nature, humanity, we got limits. So part of the absolute crazy that we all experience in life is when we try to push past those limitations, that's when we get in trouble. I think most of us tend to think of freedom as being the complete absence of constraints. If I had no constraints whatsoever, then I would really be free. But that's not true. So I challenge you for a minute to think like a fish. Think like a fish. A fish absorbs oxygen from the water, not the atmosphere. A fish is free only if it is restricted to water. If you free a fish from the river and put him on land and say, go buddy, explore it, what just happened is he lost his freedom to live. The fish is not more free, the fish is less free if he cannot honor the reality of his nature. And the same is true in our lives. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, freedom is not so much the absence of limitations as it is finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. I also like what G.K. Chesterton said. He, he said it this way, whenever you remove any fence, always pause long enough to ask yourself, why was it put here in the first place? That's wise, man. You're ready to tear down the fence, but he says at least pause long enough to go, why did somebody put this fence here to start with? 
And if you won't take any of those thinkers seriously, then, then maybe you deepest thinkers would resonate with the wisdom of Dr. Ian Malcolm, because this is how he puts it. Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could resurrect dinosaurs, they didn't stop to think if they should. That's, for, that's Jurassic Park for those of you who are the deep thinkers in the room. You get the point. Limits are not to be rejected, but instead limits are meant to be the parameters for safety and freedom for all of us. And so the point today is that knowing your limits is a gift from God. Let me show you what I mean with wages, warnings, and a little wine. Check this out. First Timothy chapter 5, that's where we've arrived. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. The elders, now in this study, we've already talked about the fact elders, overseers, pastors, that's the same word, those are interchangeable for us. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Can I get an amen? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Let's keep going. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now, last week, last week we learned about a particular group of people in the church in Ephesus that Timothy pastors that were sort of being overlooked, they were the widows. And Paul used this terminology about honoring widows, and eventually he got to the point that those win widows who were honorable, they got monetary support. Remember, it was in a day where if they didn't have husbands, they didn't have kids, there was no one to take care of them, and so the church would care for them. It's like the word honorarium. It is to pay someone in some way. And so this time, Paul reintroduces this honor concept, but this time it's toward leaders. And his whole point is, if you're going to take care of the vulnerable around you, be sure to take care of those who devote themselves to the work of caring for you, like pastors, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And he uses the imagery of an ox. It's like, did Paul just call me an ox? Yes, he did. He said, it's like an ox who's working the field. If you have an ox that's working the field, you let him eat. You don't starve him to death. And he said, that's how it is with leaders. If they devote themselves to preaching and leading and all that it takes to do that, then don't muzzle them. The laborer deserves his wages. Here's the fact. I could not do what I do here, and what I mean by that is shepherding, meetings, counseling, sermon prep, leadership development, evangelism, networking, prayer, I, I could not. I couldn't do that at the current level if I was also responsible for working another job to provide for my family, and that's just the fact. Now, I grew up in preacher circles, and in preacher circles, this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, is often referred to as the most awkward verses in the Bible for a pastor to talk about to his church, and I think you see why. 
But you know what I've come to realize? Honestly, it's not awkward if a pastor will work hard at the task to which he's called, and it's not awkward if a church will work hard toward taking care of a pastor and his family, including financially. Therefore, I am grateful to stand before you today celebrating the fact that you guys for more than 20 years have taken care of me and of my family. Preaching on this passage is not awkward for me today. It is the chance to say thank you. Thank you for doing this well. Because if you didn't, I wouldn't get to do what I do at the level in which we get to do it. Now here's how this relates to limits. This only works if I remember what I'm called to be and called to do. If I get outside those limits, it doesn't work. We've seen in, in 1 Timothy this imagery of, a, of an overseer, an elder, a pastor, and Paul's getting specific here with, with preaching and teaching. Well, what's the purpose of that? What is his goal? What is, what is he really all about? And Paul actually gives us some clarity of that to the Ephesian church in the book of Ephesus. This is what he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, this only works if I understand that my limit is not just to do ministry. No, my limits are to equip the people to do works of ministry. Not only is it practical, right, because you don't just have one person who's trying to, to do the whole picture, but you've got an entire body who is unleashed to, to love and to serve and to bring glory to God, but it is fulfilling for everybody. Now come on, are there moments when it's easier to do it yourself? Yes. In almost every area of life, you will find that there are certain moments that it feels it's just easier sometimes to do this particular thing myself. But in the case of ministry, it is not better. It is not better. When pastors limit ministry to themselves, and when a congregation limits ministry to its pastors, it is unhealthy, it is unproductive, it is unbiblical. It is outside the limits, and when we get outside the limits, we get hurt. That's wages. Now let's talk warnings. Verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning who are to are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Here's what Paul says. Timothy, sometimes leaders mess up. Sometimes leaders make mistakes. And when they do, it needs to be addressed. But then Paul lays out this process that just so brilliantly weaves together 
taking into consideration the reality of knowing our limits. Here's, here's where Paul basically starts. He says, no one is beyond accusation. No one. Because in, in this text, he, he's saying, sometimes leaders sin. Sometimes they mess up. No one is untouchable. So the process is this. When someone accuses a leader, be sure to investigate every claim. When someone accuses a leader, be sure that you investigate it. Don't think that because they're a leader, they are in the clear. It cannot work that way. However, Paul says, there's a second principle we got to understand. It is also true that no one is beyond making a wrong accusation. Because just because someone accuses a leader of doing wrong doesn't make it true. And so you got this twofold aspect. You got to hear the one who is accusing, but you got to wait to corroborate the evidence against the accused, right? I mean, the, the whole idea of innocent until proven what? Guilty. So Paul says, be sure you investigate every claim. But before you admit it's true, you need to seek out more evidence affirming that this has happened elsewhere. I remember several years ago, um, we as a church set out to take a real serious look at our bylaws, okay? Every organization has to have some some legal documents that define who you are and how you operate and how things in a sense will be structured. And we got to realizing that the bylaws for Heart of Life Church had not been really dealt with for, I mean, decades and decades and decades, and they didn't fit um, really where we, we were and were going as a church. And so we had a team of people sit down and really look over that whole deal. It was a lengthy process, and then the church voted on, hey, this is our set of bylaws. I remember the day that I sat across the table from the team of people who are working on those bylaws, and this is the statement that I made to them. Make sure you make a way to get rid of me. Make sure you make a way within those bylaws to get rid of me. And the reason I said that is because I've been around church long enough to know that sometimes leaders mess up. And don't get me wrong, I, I was obviously hoping when I said the statement that that would never actually have to be me, but, but one of these days, it, it, it won't be me, whether it is me or whoever it is that would be leading, if they begin to act in a way that is inconsistent with the life and the gospel of Jesus, or if you as a church just get to the point that you decide, okay, that's enough, that's enough, it's just time for him to, to move on, right? There needs to be a healthy way for that to be dealt with. Paul then gives us one more principle, though, to weave this together. No one is beyond believing a wrong accusation. You ever heard a rumor? And even if that rumor wasn't true, if you were really honest, you would admit that when you heard the rumor about this specific person, it affected your perspective about that person, even though 
it wasn't true. Yeah. I mean, come on, this is the culture in which we live now. In our communication culture, we see it daily, right? There are allegations that are, that are made all the time about very public figures, and, and once that information is out, it spreads so quickly that it's almost impossible to control it when it's out there. And if it's a wrong or untrue accusation, it gets out there without a chance of it being investigated or corroborated. That's a weird word, isn't it? As I was typing this, like, corroborated? I sound like Elmer Fudd sometimes when I say it, corroborated, right? It's like one of those weird words. But when you can't do that, then, then it just, the, the general public then is, is left to just an unfair position of trying to prejudge and predetermine, is, are they guilty or not? And in essence, even if an accused individual was wrongfully accused, the public has made up their mind on the subject, and before you know it, that person's reputation, their name, their trust is just totally and wrongfully destroyed. Those of you who are sports fans, last night, if you were watching any sporting event, a notice came across your television or phone or something in some way that that declared breaking news. Anybody, what was the breaking news? Andrew Luck, right? Retiring from football, right? Did you get that? And it made you step back and go, what? Well, once I heard the rest of the story, his, his goal was to actually today announce his retirement from football. And the number of injuries and all that he's been through. And, but here's what I found interesting. Last night, the Colts were playing. They were, they were playing football last night. He's on the sideline. He's hurt. He can't play at the moment. And the news broke. And when the news broke, the people in the stands were getting the word that, hey, he's going to retire tomorrow, right? His intent is to tell his team and, and to make the announcement today. The, the word begins to spread on people's phones, and you know what they started doing? People start taking off his jersey if they were wearing his jersey. You can hear them booing him when he's walking off the field. And I'm saying, here's a man who has given a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in a place, worked through more injuries than he probably ever talked about. We just know the ones that they talk about, and that the first rumor. You say, well, it's not rumor because it's true. No, at the first, at that point, rumor because nobody had had the chance yet to ask any questions. Nobody even had the chance to ask, is this true? Nobody had the chance to ask, why are you retiring? Are you okay? They just start booing him. And I'm watching that last night going, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what Paul's talking about. When information moves, people tend not to wait for those answers. It just suddenly forms an opinion and a person can be destroyed. So here's what Paul says in verse 21. Verse 21, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Now that's some company. That's some company. It would do us well to remember when we gather in a moment like this, they're here. They're here. 
He said, in the presence of these, I want you to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In other words, Paul says, I I want you to be certain about the people who lead. Not only are they called and not only are they capable, but is there a Christ-likeness in them? So don't move too fast in putting people in places of leadership. The laying on of hands, what in the world is that when he says that? Well, in the Bible, whether it was commissioning people to a specific task, sometimes it was sending them out on mission. At at other times, it is this picture of an ordaining role where the person is being set apart for something like the priesthood. That laying on of hands conveys this passing or or an imparting of of authority that, that God gives people. You know when you see that scene in the Bible where Jesus stands before Pilate on trial? And after Pilate says what he says, what does Pilate do? He washes his hands, right? Symbolic washing of his hands to say, this guy is not on my conscience. You do with Jesus what you want. I want you to see that as kind of exactly the opposite of what it means for for a church or for people to lay hands on someone when it comes to, to ministry. It is basically to say, I am attached to this. I am putting my name on the line in terms of who they are and what they've been called to do. So Paul says, take your time in this. Do this right. you got to know your limits. He knows that no one, not even a good leader, is beyond accusation. So you got to investigate every claim. He knows that no one, even a good Christian, is beyond making wrong accusations. So you got to make sure that you corroborate every claim with at least two or three witnesses. And Paul knows finally that not one, not even a good church, is beyond believing something that's false or wrong. So you got to wait before you release those things, except for those who need to know. Why? Because we have limits, and we got to know them. Because when we operate outside those limits, destructive things happen. So for us as a church, that's why we need a system in place that takes this serious. Serious enough not to dismiss any single person's cry for help. And serious enough not to wrongfully destroy any good leader's reputation. Hmm. That's wages. That's warnings. Now check out this last one. Verse 23. Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. It's interesting that Paul, for a young man, Timothy, he's really young when he's trying to lead this church. I mean, I think this is one of those moments where almost everybody in the church is older than Timothy, but he's been called to lead. And there's an effect on his stomach. Paul says you got to know your limits. 
in, as it relates to your work. You got to know your limits as it relates to interpersonal conflict. But Timothy, you also got to know your limits when it comes to you physically. A little wine is sort of a medicinal prescription for an anxious stomach. And Paul's just reminding us that there are limits and no one is beyond needing to take care of themselves physically. That when you're feeling sick, you need to take a break. And when you're tired, you need to sleep. And when you're hungry, you eat. Those are limits that we have because we are human. You know who did this perfectly? Anybody want to guess? Jesus. And you're like, well, of course he did. He's God. But wait a minute. He's fully God, but he's also fully what? Man. Sometimes I think we say that, but we don't really process that. We don't really think through that. We don't really understand that. Do you notice when you read the Bible about how Jesus interacts, when Jesus is overwhelmed by people, what does he do? He gets away. I mean, you ever really thought about that piece? Fully God, fully man, which means there is a, a limitation in terms of humanity. When he is overwhelmed with the numbers of people, he, he would pull away sometimes for time alone. Why? Because sometimes the most human thing you can do is to withdraw from the crowds and just be with God. How about falling asleep in the bottom of a boat during a storm? Can we just acknowledge that you got to be fairly tired to do that? I think we always read that story and it's almost like, yeah, Jesus as God was pretending like he was tired. And so he went to sleep so that they would freak out because he's asleep, right? No, it's a part of the limitation. The most godly glorifying thing that he could do in that moment was to take a nap. Some of y'all just stood up. Some of y'all just took a note when I said that godly thing, take a nap. When Jesus asked his disciples to stay up with him to pray because he was sorrowful to the point of death, Jesus was, was demonstrating that being human means relying on your friends in times of need. Some of us act like we're stronger than Jesus. To rely on your friends in time of need, he demonstrated, that's not weakness. That's humanity. None of those actions made Jesus less than perfect. Those very human actions were exactly at the center of God's will for his life at that moment. And the same is true for us. That's what Paul's saying. You got to understand those limits. And when you step outside those limits, that doesn't make you more free. But when you live within those limits, that's when you live. Now, I want to give you something just a little practical before we send you out of here this week. And like, what in the, I don't know if I get, here's, here's a picture that I want to give you. And I want you to think in terms of plates, 
right? Salad plate, dinner plate, platter, all right? Salad plate, dinner plate, platter. Some of us in this room are built like salad plates. Now hang with me. What I mean by that is you really are built. The way you work is about a few things at a time. You're built to work one job. You do not have three. One job, maybe a few close relationships. You may have a hobby, right? But, but your life is constructed, it's like a salad plate where there are a few things. Others are like a dinner plate. There's a little more that works on your plate. Maybe a few more projects that can always be on that plate. Uh, uh, in some cases, maybe it's like you, you, more children on that plate. I'm saying you, it's like you're like a dinner plate. And then there are some people who are like platters who can handle even more. Now, I want to make sure you understand where I'm going here. I, th this, is not, this is not talking about how hard somebody works, all right? This, this is not giving you the license to go to work tomorrow and go, I'm a salad plate. I'm a salad plate. I, I just, I can't do what you're asking me to do. I'm a salad plate. I can only do like one thing at a time. That's all. That's not what this is about. It's not what this is about. I believe some of the people in our world who excel the most at certain things sometimes are salad plate people because their whole life is engulfed in that one thing, right? They are the ones who can give full attention to this one thing, and if you're looking for an expert, sometimes they are the place that you go, but, but when you look at how they're constructed, there's only a few things that's on their plate at a time. A platter, let's be clear, is not something to brag about. It's not. You didn't make you a platter, <laughs> right? A, a salad plate's not something to be ashamed of. No, that, that's a part of how you're constructed. Well, a platter is not something you brag about. This is not some point of comparison. This is about stewardship. This is about are you being faithful with how God has constructed you and what he has entrusted to you? Anybody remember a little story Jesus told one time about one two or five talents. Anybody remember that? One talent, two talents, five talents, and what they did with each of those, right? And Jesus taught an across-the-board issue of faithfulness. It's about what you do as a steward with what you have been given. Don't play the comparison game. That's not the point. It's what are your particular limits. It is true. Some people, about six hours of sleep is what you need. For some, it's eight. For some, it's 10. I would keep going, but I'm talking about what you actually need, what you, not what you take, all right? Some of you just sleep all day. I get that. But literally, there, there, there are different levels of sleep that, that, that a, a person might require in order to actually be healthy, right? Some of you, really, it's your, your makeup is, I got this one project, and this is, this is how I operate. And then there are others of us in the room that if we don't have like 12 things on the platter that, that, we, can, that we can see, and, and 
It's different construction. It is. And I want to challenge you today to think of two phases always, whether you're a salad plate or a dinner plate or a platter. You always have to know what to take off your plate. Because there are seasons that things are on your plate and then there are seasons that it needs to change. What to take off your plate? Jesus was a carpenter until he was 30. And then that's not what he did the rest of the way. Isn't that wild? Does that mean that it is wrong to be a carpenter? No. No, that was exactly what God had given him to do that season of his life until the day came for him to to reveal the true picture of, of all of who he is. I don't think Jesus was one type of person when he was a carpenter and then another type of person when he began to, to teach and right to, to be called the rabbi. No. No, it's just for a season of his life. This is where God called him to, and then you got to know what to take off the plate. I, I, I am convinced that most people don't experience burnout because they don't know how to say no. Most people experience burnout because they don't know how to say no more. More people are good at saying no than they are of saying no more. Because the issue with no more is it's already on your plate. And you got to learn how to say, it is finished. It is finished. You got to take a look. What, what's falling, what right now is falling over the edges of your plate? Come on. Whether you got a salad plate, dinner plate, platter, some of you got stuff that is falling off the edge. And it's some things that you need to transition away from. Now, let me give you a word of wisdom, I believe. If you do, don't just leave something. Don't just leave. Don't just pull away without a conversation with the people that it affects. All right? This is not you just going to the garbage can and going, I feel better. No, you got, you got stuff, too much stuff on the plate. You, you don't do that without going to the people whom those changes affect. And I'm even saying, ask them for help in that. And realize, if they really love you, the one thing they will hate more than losing you is knowing the burden was breaking you all along. I'm going to say that again. Realize, if they really love you, the one thing they'll hate more than losing you because you have to step away from that particular thing is them knowing the burden was breaking you all along. You got to know what to take off your plate, and you got to know what to put on your plate. Well, Jeff, how do you do that? Well, that is a whole other sermon series, but I would wrap it up with these words. You follow Jesus around. 
And some of you think I'm kidding, but I'm not. How do you know what to put on your plate? You follow Jesus around. Some of you want to come on a Sunday morning and me give you a list of what to put on the plate. Well, it might help a little bit, but it's not going to work without following Jesus around. Some of you want to find a Bible study. Hey, give me this Bible study or that Bible study so I can, I can arrange my life and figure out what needs to be on the plate. Thank goodness Jesus does not resign those pieces of wisdom to you and I being able to pick it up in a sermon, just a sermon, or a Bible study, or some teaching somewhere. We find that with Him with Him. Yeah, when you read your Bible, you'll start to see Him. As you're listening to Him every day, adjusting your life, you start to see those things that God loves. He speaks to you, His Spirit that is real. And you begin to realize how your life can declare the greatness of God. And in that process, you know what needs to come off the plate. It may have been fantastic for a season, but something's got to come off the plate, and then there are things that need to go on the plate. That is constantly changing for, for, for a lot of us. It's constantly changing. Right now, I just put exercise back on the plate. I did. I'm working hard again. It needs to be on there all the time, but it came off for a while. Fell off the plate. It's back on the plate. Why? Not, not even just because I want to feel better, you know what I mean? It's because, come on, this is a stewardship issue with what God has entrusted to me. And what he says to Timothy, I, I hear him. I hear him. This doesn't just happen by osmosis. <laughs> this happens when you get intentional about paying attention to what's on the plate. Let me read these last verses, and I'm going to pray for us. Here's what, here's what Paul says as he wraps this thing up in verse 24. I, you might think, well, how does this connect it? The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In other words, isn't it true that sometimes people do stuff that's wrong, and we all know it because we see it, but then there are other times that the stuff that's done wrong doesn't catch up until later, right? Some of it we won't even know until the one who holds the accounting reveals those things to be true. Some sins are revealed now, some sins, all sins will be revealed then. Well, here's where Paul's going. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. I think what Paul's saying here is sometimes this is really hard because most of us do what we do and we love the approval of people. And so a lot of us put on our plate what we put on our plate because we like people's approval and, and, and we take off our plate what we take off our plate. We, we want people to approve and we want to be seen valuable. We, we want, we, we, we want. And he's saying, come on, you may have to make some moves. You may have to make some decisions. Not saying do that in isolation, talk to the people close to you, talk to those who trust you. But he says some of those are going to be obvious now that you're being faithful. Some of those may not be obvious until later that you're being faithful. But the key, be faithful. And to be faithful, you got to know your limits so you can 
live. I'm going to pray for us. And then I want to give us just a chance to respond to what God's saying to us today. I, I realize that this is one of those sermons that really doesn't fire anybody up, okay? It isn't. This is not one of those talks where you walk out of here going, man, I wish we could do that one again next week. No. Because the whole idea of even talking about limits and knowing those things and being intentional, it, it, it really doesn't fire us up. That's okay. But the truth is that when God speaks because he loves us and he's trying to show us where life can be found, and there are some of you right now in this room, there are some of you who are listening in from Adrian, there are some of you who are listening online, and you already know the stuff that needs to come off your plate. And some of you already know the stuff that needs to go on the plate. What are we going to do? So in a minute, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to have a time after that that we can sing a little bit. Um, it's a chance to praise him to thank him that he loves us this much, that he helps us see those limits, but it's also a time that you can pray with somebody. And he might be somebody that you came with today that you trust, that you might just want to say, hey, would you pray for me? That's, I hope that never is weird here. Because come on, why are we here? Why are we here? We're here to meet with our God, and we're here to know that this is family, and to be able to trust one another, and sometimes you just got to say to somebody close to you, hey, would, would you just pray for me on this, on this particular thing? Or maybe you want to pray with, with you know, someone, maybe you don't have anybody here um, uh, at, at this campus. There'll be some folks over here on the side and kind of wrapped around the back that are available to pray with you. Um, at Adrian, there'll be somebody in the, in the back of that room that uh, will be available to pray with you. And so I just want to encourage you from this point to the end, um, take advantage of those opportunities. I thank you guys for listening today. I love you. Let me pray for you and then we'll sing. God, there are some of us that we really are, are, are still in the process of believing that we are valuable to you. God, what I, what I mean by that, you know, is, is that some of us, um, the look of our, of our plate is a reflection of us wanting to, to seem important, wanting us to feel valuable, wanting, wanting us to be able to say we can accomplish this. And God, I, I'm asking that out of today, there, there could just be this truth, this understanding, God, that you take deep within our hearts. God, you love us. We are valuable to you, and you have made us unique. God, will you help us to stop comparing? And will you help us to start celebrating the fact that you would entrust anything into our care? God, some who are tired here today need to rest. And I'm asking you to give them courage that the right way, the right process, where they need to say no more, they will say no more. 
God, some of us who are still learning what it means to follow you and just every day to adjust our lives, God, I'm asking you to help us to do that better this week. God, not just something we, we want to wait for. God, not just something we think is going to automatically happen, but that this week we would be intentional about listening better. God, wanting to follow you. And then maybe some, God, that need to begin that walk with you. I pray that you would open eyes today, that we could see how you love us. God, a cross where you died for our sin, a resurrection that brings us life, and that today you would give us courage to say that we want you, we trust you, we want to follow you. God, I thank you for what you are doing in all of our hearts today. Thank you for loving us this much. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.